Welcome to the Duck and Dodge Show, dispatches from the Crisis Com Wars. I'm your host, Bob Kadosi. And I am your co-host, Joe Luongo. Our topic today is sexual harassment in the workplace. Invariably, companies falter in the communication surrounding a claim of sexual harassment. Today we will examine the best practices to reduce the risk of sexual harassment, as well as discuss what companies should do when a case surfaces. To help us through the complexities of this issue, we are pleased to have as our guests Dick Block and Bree Kutnar, employment lawyers at MITS Levin. Dick and Bree, thank you for being guests on the first Duck and Dodge podcast. Let's start by talking about the most recent newsworthy example of alleged sexual harassment involving the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo. We're not interested in rehashing any of the details, but let's discuss the broader questions it raises. First, what are the steps that companies should take to ensure a safe work environment? There are many things companies should and are doing. Um, The first thing is to have uh, an enlightened group at the top of the company. The C-suite has to buy in on whatever procedures or prophylactics you're going to do to make sure that you have a comforting, welcoming work environment. And then to train your managers on their responsibilities. And after you've done that, then you meet with the employees and you have you have a, a group meetings with your employees where you cover um, uh, what is harassment, what is your policy, um, and, and make it clear to the employees that they can go to any member of management that they feel comfortable with. And that's because their own supervisor may be the harasser or maybe even the boss is the harasser. I just also want to echo what you said, Dick, which I think is really important. And that is, you know, training, not just employees, but also training supervisors and managers. One of the things that Dick and I have done in some of our trainings is to actually role play with managers about what they should do if they are, if they do get some kind of a complaint. And a lot of times, even the most well-meaning managers who are excellent at their jobs, you know, are taken aback and don't really know how to handle someone who's coming to report a complaint. From a legal perspective, how would you define both sexual harassment and sexual assault? Sure. So, I mean, I think generally speaking, harassment is this kind of broad um, category of behavior that encompasses all kinds of different things that are not necessarily physical, right? I think generally when we think of an assault, you think of something physical. You know, you think of someone being attacked or physically coerced or, you know, assaulted in, in some way that brings physical harm to them. And with harassment, there is not the same requirement of a physical component. You could have, you know, conduct that's simply just verbal. Um, You know, you could have comments or jokes or inappropriate sexual comments that are being made. Uh, You could have nonverbal behavior, such as, you know, looking at someone in a particular way or making gestures, lewd or, you know, crude sexual gestures, um, that type of thing. We've talked today about sexual harassment and sexual assault 
in a physical office environment. But what about in a virtual environment? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, we had years ago, not even during this era, uh, but years ago, we had a case for an investment bank that a London managing director uh, had been to New York on a visit and met a executive assistant in New York. And he sent her uh, text messages from London that were pretty much um, had significant sexual innuendo. And uh, this is a managing director and executive assistant. So this is real power disparity. And he was sending these things all virtually and um, basically even saying in the text messages, I shouldn't be doing this, should I? <laughs> well, she eventually sued the company and uh, he lost his job over it. And it was all virtual. He never touched her. I think if I've got this right, that New York is one of the few states with a law requiring companies to engage in annual employee training in discrimination and harassment. Can you share with us the prescriptive idea behind the law? And is there any data on its effectiveness? Um, well, the law is pretty, you know, it's pretty transparent. The law wants people to be instructed on what is harassment and what's not harassment. And actually the New York City Commission on Human Rights has a program um, that they suggest that you can do whatever, you know, you could do your own training, but in that program, they mention a lot of transgender issues, and things like that, that might be missed in the typical corporate meetings, uh, you know, seminars on the subject. Um, and they also want you to be very specific that you can tell the employees where they can bring a charge if they have a problem, meaning, not just internally, but to the New York City Commission on Human Rights or the New York State Division of Human Rights um, or the e United States e Equal, Opportunity, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. So those are some of the elements in, this, in the programs that do require in New York State and, and in New York City, um, re you know, repeated annual training. You know, for one thing, you have new employees during the year uh, and for another thing, people, I, it never hurts to have at least annually meetings reminding people that their jobs and they will be held accountable if they act inappropriately. I mean, that message can't be said too often. So once a year seems pretty modest to me. From a crisis communication standpoint, our advice to clients in situations like sexual harassment and sexual assault is to make a clean, transparent apology to their stakeholders and the public. You know, frankly, one of the roadblocks to our general advice in this regard can be legal counsel. Sometimes attorneys freeze out the PR crisis consultant in the interest of protecting a client from legal jeopardy. And in so doing, the lawyers are furthering the reputation damage to the company Dick and Bree, what's your reaction to this point of view? Yeah, whenever I have a case that uh, may hit the press, I call Rooney Partners. <laughs> um, you know, I've worked with you guys for, for decades at this Thank point. And, yeah. no, but I do because um, I, there are two levels of communication that's really important in these types of cases. It spreads like wildfire internally through a company when some when there's a harassment claim so you need a PR's 
guys' sense of how do you, you know, what should be in your communications to your staff about what's going on. It's very important. And then, of course, to the public at large. And unless our clients have internal PR departments, they need folks to speak to the public at large. They shouldn't do it themselves. Um, you know, I never think it looks good just when a lawyer says no comment. I don't think that radiates much. Um, but a thoughtful response, I think, is very, very vital. And I, and, and I have no hesitancy uh, working with a pre-R professional to do that. Well, thank you, Dick. And, um, you know, I mean, just, maybe just to look at the example for a moment uh, of, of uh, as we decided to begin the interview uh, around the situation with Andrew Cuomo, it's a scenario where, um, you know, it's this kind of trickling uh, of news and other things and other allegations. And um, do you find that to be more challenging situations when it's something that may be kind of spiraling, maybe a bit out of control versus something that may seem to be more contained to an incident versus maybe a pervasive behavior? Well, I, I think you've answered the, the you've, you have the answer in your question. Yeah. If there's something pervasive, <laughs> it's gonna get the attention of, of you know, the page sixes very fast. Um, if it's a one-off that the company uh, you know, one thing you haven't asked about is the settlements of these cases. Most of these cases settle and they put in non-disclosure provisions. And so, you know, very often, you know, the approach is let's keep it from the press. Now, in, in the governor's situation, it, it hit the press right off the bat. And he's such a high profile individual that um, he was answering essentially himself. Uh, whatever the allegations are, and it it but in a private company as opposed to a public figure, um, I think one of the things that are that that happens is plaintiffs' attorneys won't run to the press that fast because the company will be willing to settle quicker before it hits the press. Once it hits the press, then the company will feel that it may have to be in a position to defend itself. So I think that there is a difference between public figures and private figures. I, I don't know. I, I've never discussed that particular issue with Bree. I don't know if you have additional thoughts on that. So just to go back to your original question, Bob, I think a good lawyer views themselves as a partner of the business. And so, you know, I, I understand sometimes there's a tendency to give sort of a legal answer, but I think a good lawyer really will try and consider everything, all of the different components of the issue um, and give sound business advice. And sometimes that that means, you know, bringing in someone to deal with the PR aspect of things and partnering with them to try and get, you know, the best outcome, um, not just from a legal st standpoint, but also from a public relations standpoint and, and to manage communications in the best way. The focus of this particular podcast is around uh, the implications of sexual harassment, but beyond sexual harassment situations, there are certainly many other workplace type scenarios from a legal perspective that could have a material impact on a company's reputation, both with its internal and external constituents. Maybe gender discrimination, age discrimination, pay inequality between men and women, et cetera. Do you think that companies are better prepared to handle the potential fallouts of these various scenarios better than any point or you know any movement on that or any 
trends that you might be seeing? I think that big companies uh, are going to be better prepared because they may even have internal communications uh, executives. Uh, and the smaller companies, I don't think are prepared. Um, I, I haven't seen, you know, and, and Bree and I serve sometimes the same, but sometimes very different <laughs> clients. I, my clients typically when these things happen are, you know, they, they do not have, um, they don't seem really prepared from a communication standpoint. And I think that, you know, we talked about bringing in PR um, after a case is brought, I probably think um, it's probably a good idea to, to have that relationship created before there's the problem. But I, I am amazed at how many companies do not use outside PR professionals, and instead they have their lawyer talking to the paper, to the press. And some lawyers are good at it intuitively; some aren't. But they're not PR professionals. Dick and Bree, thank you for being guests on the first episode of the Duck and Dodge podcast. Very informative and such an important issue, and not just from a crisis communications perspective. Bob, an interesting point that they both raised was around the influence and impacts of a toxic corporate culture, as they described it. What are your thoughts on that? I agree with you, Joe that their point around corporate culture and its role and influence around workplace issues, including sexual harassment, is an interesting and very important one. On the issue of sexual harassment, companies can duck and dodge in various ways. On the front end, they could duck and dodge around the necessary training to help educate and inform employees. They may not see it as being a key HR and communications priority. As Dick indicated, smaller organizations often have this issue. I'm going to be blunt and say that that's a real mistake. It is astounding to me to hear from Dick and Bree that some organizations forego this type of training. A massive reputation vulnerability, I believe. On the flip side, companies may end up needing to bob and weave in navigating a sexual harassment legal situation in the public eye, hoping that a no comment may be a sufficient communication strategy. Well, that may work in the short term, though there are longer-term reputation risks for companies hoping and praying that a sexual harassment situation simply fades away from the public spotlight.